The book of Revelation is one of those books in the Bible that's probably one of the hardest or strangest to understand. There's a lot of intense and symbolic imagery in it. There's a lot of destruction, blood, war, famine, all these plagues. And oftentimes, people can get hung up on all of that. And that's important, but it's not the primary importance, not the primary points of the story. The primary points of the book of Revelation is to show how the story ends, how God's plan for his people comes to fulfillment. And the reason there's all of that destruction, warfare, combat, and, and seemingly chaos is because this is God putting things right. He is going to war with the forces of evil. And so I'd like to kind of look at three different aspects of God putting things right that we see, uh, three different lines from our second reading from the book of Revelation this evening. And so the first one I fo want to focus on is John says that the sea was no more in this new heaven and new earth. And so that's an interesting little detail because what John is not saying, he's not saying that there's not going to be any body of water in the new heavens and the new earth. What's significant about this is the sea was a symbol for ancient people, especially the Jews, of chaos, of death, of evil, of the abode of the dead. Right? The sea was something that was untamable, was dangerous to travel on the, on the water. Um, it's dangerous for us, but not nearly as dangerous. We have a lot of modern technical advancements. A lot of our modern ships are uh, very safe comparatively to be able to travel on the water. So oftentimes we have a much more positive view of the ocean or lakes. Um, it wasn't so in the ancient world. It was treacherous to go out on the sea. And so it was the place of the unknown. And again, uh, the for it was used as a symbol of death, evil, chaos, of the forces that were opposed to God's plan. It's by John giving us this detail, saying the sea was no more. He's saying that God is vanquishing. He's vanquishing all of those forces that are opposed to him. Right? He's putting things right. And if we just look in our own world, we really don't have to look far, right, beyond the latest headlines for forces of chaos or evil in the world. You know, we see God's, or we see rejection of God's plan for human sexuality with all the pushing of gender ideology, which leads, which has led to abortion, right? Abortion in our country, um, look, look, seeking to kill the most innocent in our society. And we see corruption in our own church, corruption in our government, politics, corruption in the media. I mean, there are a lot of forces of chaos and evil that are opposed to the will of God. And at times, they can seem overwhelming. However, John wants his readers to understand, as he was in a turbulent time too, right? The early Christians were very, very persecuted. He wants them to understand that God wins in the end, and that nothing, even evil, is outside of God's providence, right? So God never wills evil. That's really important for us to always remember. God never wills evil. He will permit it. And the only time God permits evil is to draw a greater good from it. And so our question, as we look around at what's going on in our world, is say, well, what's the great good? Or what's the greater good than this really great evil? Um, God's got to be drawing a greater good out of all the evil that he's permitting. Well, we can see some of it, some of God's plan. We don't necessarily see all of it, and we won't necessarily see all of it till the other side of heaven. But at least part of it that we can see is that God is making it very, very clear in our day and age. He's making a very clear choice for humanity between choosing for him or choosing against him, right? Things that would have been not even in question or dispute a hundred years ago, right? 
what is a man and what is a woman, what's the point and purpose of human sexuality, all of these things are under um, very direct attack, and God is making it very clear. We have a very clear understanding, both from our faith, but also the natural law, how God has created us, of what is good and what is evil. And so God's not allowing people to hide and, and uh, pr pretend to have ignorance anymore of what is right and what is wrong. So he's giving us a very clear choice, and that's good. So hopefully more people make the clear choice of choosing for God and not against him. But again, no matter how chaotic it might seem out in the world, God is in control, and God ultimately wins in the end. And he will draw a greater good out of all of the evils that we experience either in our own lives or in the world itself, again, if we just cling to him and are faithful to him. Second line I want us to focus on is John says that he hears this voice saying, Behold, God's dwelling is with the human race. This is actually a quote I have I had etched into the chalice that I'm using at Mass tonight, my personal chalice. I had it etched in there in Latin as a reminder to me of what happens at every single Mass, that this is a fulfillment of that passage, right? It will be fulfilled at the end of time when, uh, God willing, we all go to heaven. But here at Mass, we have an opportunity now to have God dwell with us quite literally in the flesh under the appearance of bread and wine. God desires to unite himself with his people, with you and with me. John also says that he sees the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. So there's this bridal marital symbolism. That's how closely God wants to unite himself with each one of us. And I unite myself to God, certainly through the sacraments that he gives to us through his church, but also by making a clear commitment, again, to the gospel, a clear choice for him, and a clear rejection of sin. And by loving him and others before anything else in my life. So that has to be the deepest desire and focus of my life, the deepest direction and focal point of my existence, to desire to dwell with God, to be with him. And it has to come before everything else. And secondly, I've got to love other people before, my, before myself, right? Jesus drives this home in the short gospel passage that we have. He says, I give you a new commandment, love one another. Then he says again, I, as I have loved you, so also you should love one another. And then he repeats, this is how everyone's going to know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. So three times in those three lines, he says it over and over again, right? That if we want to be united with him, we have to have love for others. We have to put him first and then others before ourselves. There's a beautiful passage from the Catechism that says, it is impossible to keep the Lord's commandments by imitating the divine model from outside. There has to be a vital participation coming from the depths of the heart in the holiness and the mercy and the love of our God. And so what it, that passage is saying is we can't just live our faith as checking off a list of items, right? Saying, well, this is what it means to be a good Catholic, so as long as I you know, come to Mass on Sunday and don't do anything too bad, then, you know, that's it. And the Catechism is saying no, right? There has to be a vital participation coming from the depths of the heart. So again, at the deepest level of my heart, I have to desire to dwell with God, to be one with him, to want what he wants, to love the way he loves. That's a really tall order, right? The only way I can love the way God loves, because the way Jesus loves us, is with a divine love. So I have to be intimately linked with him. I have to desire him before all else. And if I have that kind of relationship with him, that changes everything in my life, right? I'll be willing to undergo even suffering, 
right? As we see in, I want to share that love with others, as we see Paul and Barnabas in our, in our first reading from the Acts of the Apostles, they're going around, they're preaching, and we hear some of their, um, their what's going on in their missionary journeys, how they're preaching the gospel to these different cities. What we don't hear is that we hear that, you know, he tells the, uh, those, the followers of Christ that they've made in these cities that we have to undergo persecution to enter into the kingdom of God. It's necessary for us to undergo sufferings. Well, like two or three verses before that, this is one of the reasons we could see why, why they're saying that. So just a few verses earlier from the passage we heard tonight, it says, however, some Jews from Antioch and Iconium arrived and won over the crowds. They stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered around him, he got up and entered the city. On the following day, he left with Barnabas for Derbe. So they preached the gospel in these towns, these cities, Antioch and Iconium, and then they move on to Lystra. And then some Jews from Antioch and Iconium were jealous of him. They come, they stir up the crowds, they stone Paul. Apparently, they, they think they've done a good enough job because they think he's dead. They throw him out of the city. And then Paul gets up. We don't know if he died and was resurrected, came back to life, or if he was still alive. Luke doesn't give us that detail. But then he gets up, goes back into the city. They continue on their missionary journey. And then they come back into the city to encourage the disciples that they've made. I assume one of the reasons that they have to encourage the disciples to remain faithful in the midst of persecution, they probably saw Paul physically, right? He probably wasn't recovered from the stoning that had just happened to him. But Paul and Barnabas are so filled with the love of Christ that they're willing to risk even death and persecution because it's that important to them. Right? They desire the salvation not only of themselves, but of those around them. Finally, in our, in our last line from, the, from our second reading from the book of Revelation, we hear this beautiful line, Behold, I make all things new. Again, God is for us, and he can draw good out of, again, the greatest of evil. We have the cross as the greatest example of this. That's the worst thing that we as humans have done, putting God in the flesh to death, and that ends up being salvation for the entire world. So it can happen no matter what's going on in the world around us, but it can also happen in my own life as well. And so my brothers and sisters, I think one of the ways that we can make this real in our own lives is this week, take some time to really ask ourselves, especially in prayer with the Lord, Lord, do I really desire what you desire? Are you at the center of my life? But then also, do I believe this? Do I believe this line, behold, I can make all things new? That if there's a particular thing that we're struggling with, Maybe it's a doubt, it could be a memory, it could be a uh, past sin that we have trouble forgiving ourselves from. Maybe it's an addictive behavior or, addictive, or an addictive sin, perhaps a broken relationship. Again, a, maybe a lack of trust in God's love or providence. Maybe it's a spiritual slothfulness, right? Maybe I have been living my life as just kind of a checklist of things to do as opposed to a living relationship with the Lord. But whatever it is, God wants to make that new. Right? He has the power to make that new if we'll let him. And so my brothers and sisters, as we prepare to receive Jesus in the Holy Eucharist this evening, let's ask him for that grace. Let's ask him for that grace to believe in this, to believe in this promise, that with him, by surrendering our, our hearts and our lives to him, by desiring what he desires, by loving him and by loving others, he can truly make in our lives all things new.